time with loved ones and that it was a refreshing time off of school, off of work, um, hopefully a break from your responsibilities other than, you know, doing the dishes, of course, um, and everything that comes along with hosting a meal. Um, Unfortunately, now that Thanksgiving is over, um, this means that I can no longer chide any of you for listening to Christmas music um, or having decorations up. Uh, There is, in fact, a tree and lights that are up at my house. Uh, So I won't be on your case for that any longer, and I will keep my Grinch mouth shut until December 26th. Okay, day after Christmas, that stuff comes down. Clear? All right. So turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Today, we're going to be there yet again. We were there last week. Um, And we're going to take a second look at the same story that we looked at last week. Um, After my sermon last week, I had a really awesome conversation uh, with my wife about last week's sermon. And it was confirmed to me yet again that she is much smarter than I am. Um, And she pointed out some things that uh, when she said it, I was like, I wish you had talked to me before the sermon because I would have included all that. Um, She was very wise. And we'll be looking at some of the really good stuff that came up in that conversation. So I couldn't not revisit this passage a second time. Um. Again, hopefully a few days ago, uh, you guys were able to sit at a table with family, friends, loved ones, uh, whomever, and eat a Thanksgiving meal. Hopefully it was an occasion for expressing thanks for all that God has given us. Perhaps it was an enjoyable time with family. Uh, Perhaps it was a stressful time with family. Uh, Perhaps you were with people that you liked. Perhaps you were with people that you didn't like. Um, maybe a mixture of all of those things. Hopefully there was somebody that prayed at that meal. And maybe there are a few of you who live in a family where your prayer uh, might have gone something like this. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers in the South call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest. If this sounds familiar to you, perhaps you saw the movie Talladega Nights, starring Will Ferrell, who uh, plays this cocky race car driver named Ricky Bobby. And in this particular scene, Ricky Bobby and his family are sitting down to a meal of, I think it was McDonald's, KFC, and Taco Bell. And uh, he begins to pray to baby Jesus. And his wife says to him, Uh, Sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. And Ricky Bobby says back, Well, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And he continues, Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers, with your tiny little fat balled-up fists pawing at the air, At this point, his buddy, his friend Cal, interrupts, and he begins to describe his version of Jesus. And he says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party. And I like my Jesus to party. 
I, I like to think of Jesus with giant eagle's wings and, and singing lead vocal for Leonard Skinner with, with like a huge angel band. And I'm in the front row just hammered drunk. Ricky's son then chimes in and says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And finally, Ricky finishes his prayer. Dear eight pound, six ounce newborn infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant. So cuddly, but still omnipotent. We just thank you. So we see a scene like this and it's goofy and we all laugh. Um, by the way, if any of you do have a family like that, please invite me for dinner just once, okay? Just once I want to be at your table when this happens. Now, the reason why I bring up this scene is, uh, besides to say that I hope your family is even close to that entertaining, um, because it illustrates for us, I think, what so many of us do with God, whether we realize it or not. Over the last few weeks, we've been in this series called Taste and See, which will come to an end today. Um, We began in this series with Psalm 34 and the invitation that David writes in Psalm 34, where he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And there in that first message of the series, we talked about the fact that sometimes we can't taste Not because the Lord has a lack of goodness that he's showing us, but because sin has damaged our taste buds. We're we're singed by playing with fire over and over. And we need God to repair those damaged taste buds so that we can experience the goodness that he already shows. Then last week we talked about this story of Cain and Abel that we'll be revisiting again. And we talked about the fact that when we obey God out of obligation, out of a sense of duty, it seems like an invisible fence, uh, this barrier that restrains us from the life that we really want, but we can't go after because we're afraid that God is going to zap us. But on the other hand, when we obey with joy, joyous obedience feels like a sanctuary. And in this story, we talked about how Cain's heart was not one of joy. His heart was not with God. He was only going through outward rituals. He was going through the motions. Cain was not interested in worshiping God. Cain's sole interest was in being the chosen one himself. Today, we're going to take a second look at this Cain and Abel story. And what I would like for us to see in this passage is that all too often... We do the very same thing that Ricky Bobby does. And that is that we make God into our own image. And when we do that, we cannot actually enjoy him. We cannot actually taste and see that the Lord is good when we're not even really talking about the Lord. So, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Um, if you don't own a Bible, there's some in the back that you can have, and the, the words will also be behind me on the screen. So, uh, Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain 
a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So, last week, again, we established that Cain brought a half-hearted offering. Whereas Abel, his brother, brought the first and the best. He brought the firstborn of the flock. He brought the fattened portions of the flock. While Cain only offered something. Just a regular offering um, of the ground, of, of fruit. And we established that Cain saw the requirement to bring an offering to the Lord as a constraint. He saw it as an obligation rather than seeing it as a moment, an act of joyous thanksgiving. But what we didn't talk about last week specifically was the type of offering that Cain brought. So if you're taking notes, here is point number one. We must approach God on his terms, not on ours. We must approach God on his terms, not ours. So in order to unpack what's going on in this verse, we're going to have to look at portions of the rest of the Bible. And I confess to you that over the next few minutes, it will kind of be like information coming from a fire hydrant. So bear with me. So in order to to get here, first let's look at the context of the entire Bible start to finish. In the simplest possible form, the umbrella view of the Bible is that first we have God. God himself, God in relationship, God in Trinity. Not a God who is one that is needy, but a God that is complete and full in and of himself. That God existing in perfection in and of himself, existing in love in and of himself, creates out of an overflow of that love, mankind and the rest of the universe so that mankind can be invited into the relationship that is shared between the Godhead. 
that shared love that God is love, not just that God does love, we are invited into for that purpose. We're not created because he needs us. We're created because he invites us to enjoy him and glorify him forever. After this, shortly after the creation, we find Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 committing the sin that would break everything. In this moment, they choose something else rather than God. The serpent uh, tempts them and, and gets them to believe that things will be better if they do it on their own. He says, God is holding out on you. You don't need to be obedient. You need to do your own thing. Be your own master. And so they sin and everything breaks. Through the process of the rest of the Bible, what we find is a story of redemption. And we'll come back to this story of redemption as we, as we talk specifically about Genesis chapter 4. But all of this will eventually lead up to Jesus. Jesus being the perfect redemption for us. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave is what purchases us our salvation. And then ultimately it will end in restoration. Where everything that was perfect and yet broken in the beginning will be remade and made brand new and restored to its original state where we will enjoy God and glorify him forever. So that's the the bird's eye view of the entire Bible. Now we zoom in a little bit on that idea of redemption. And with that context set, specifically the type of redemption that God uh, lays out. When we look at the entire scope of human history from beginning to end, it is a story of God working to redeem mankind. And what we have in the Bible is a process of what is called progressive revelation. That means that God is slowly revealing more and more of himself, slowly revealing more and more of his will, more and more of the story uh, to mankind. Now there are many who wrongly look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and they sense a contradiction and they say, why did God all of a sudden change? Why does it seem like God changed his approach, even changed his character? But that's not actually what's happening between the Old and the New Testament. What we have in the Old and the New Testament is a transitional uh, God revealing himself more clearly. If any of you are readers, you will know that in any good book, you find the same type of framework. As the story goes on in a good book, you find more and more of the plot being revealed. Plot lines deepen, characters deepen. As you continue to read further into the story, the things that you read earlier on in the book now all of a sudden make sense. With more information now, things that seemed odd or out of place now all of a sudden fit into the narrative of the story. As the story unfolds, especially as you get to the end, especially as you read a book a second time or a third time or, or many, many times, you can go back through the book and you can see all of the places that foreshadowed to later things in the story. It's, it's kind of like finding little Easter eggs in the story, these things that, that point forward, subtle hints that you probably missed the first time around. The same is true if you watch a really good movie. Upon first viewing, there are things that you absolutely will miss. But then once you get to the end and then you rewatch the movie, 
then you see, oh, I, I see what that scene was pointing forward to. Ah, the director was, was putting that in to leave a visual cue. And now that I know the end of the story, now that I know the rest of the story, that visual cue all of a sudden makes sense. It's, it's pointing forward to when X, Y, or Z would happen. The Bible is no different. With the entire story in mind, we can go back through and look at all of the foreshadowings. We can go back through and look at all the things that point forward, the subtle hints. And at the center of the story is Christ. Jesus is the one who pays the penalty of, uh, uh, for the sin of all mankind. All mankind, from Adam and Eve in the very beginning to whomever is the last person standing. The death of Jesus on the cross is the propitiation for sin. Uh, Or to put it another way, it is the full payment that fulfills justice and provides us the opportunity to be saved. Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The price is our lives. And the reason is because sin is an act of unplugging ourselves from the source of life. Uh, I've used the silly example before of a toaster. If a toaster had free will and decided to unplug itself from the electrical outlet, what you would have is a dead toaster. Because that toaster is now no longer plugged in to the source of life. And that act of Adam and Eve rebelling in the garden was essentially saying, we don't need you, we're unplugging. And it broke everything. So, the penalty for sin is death. Another way of putting this is that the penalty for sin is blood. And so, Jesus poured out his own blood to pay the penalty. Then Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death itself and offering that new life to every single one of us. And that is the key to the entire story. Our salvation rests upon the perfect sacrifice of Christ to be the substitution on our behalf to make us right with God. With that in mind, we can go back and look at the story and see what kind of foreshadowings, what kind of Easter eggs, what kind of fingers pointing forward we can find. We can see how the story is slowly revealed leading up to Jesus. If the ultimate point is Christ, what then are things that point forward, what things build up toward Christ? One of those things is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In animal sacrifice. When we rewind in the story from Jesus and go back to Moses, we find in Leviticus 17.11 where God tells him, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We find this... Further explained in Exodus where God lays explicitly out for Moses all of the sacrificial laws. The entire sacrificial system. He lays out laws describing how particular animals are to be sacrificed in order to make atonement. And we know that this uh, uh, sacrificial system was not set up to be a permanent solution. 
It was set up to be a foreshadowing. It was set up to be a finger pointing forward in the direction of Jesus. Because Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice. Later, we find in Hebrews a a, a view backwards of the story explaining more. In chapter 9, verses 11 through 18 of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus entered once and for all into the Holy of Holies, not by the means of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Then this passage begins to talk about the temporary sanctification provided by animal sacrifice and how that is put to rest by the eternal sanctification provided by the blood of Christ. And through that, he is the mediator of a new covenant because his death redeems us from our transgressions by, it says, inaugurating the new covenant with his blood. Verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9 makes it explicit, saying, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I want you to remember that verse, Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we have Jesus and his blood as the ultimate atonement. That is what is at the center of the story. And leading up to the center of the story, we have the sacrificial system handed down to be a foreshadowing. And we know that God explicitly lays it out for Moses in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus throughout the Old Testament. But we know, kind of reading between the lines, that he also must have laid it down to his people even before Moses. There are other characters in the Old Testament before Moses that we find who are engaging in the sacrificial system. For example, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all offering sacrifices to God on the altar. We find Job. Uh, Job, chronologically, is the oldest book in the Bible. And we find Job, in Job chapter 1, offering sacrifices on behalf of his children to atone for their sin. If we rewind further in the story of human history, we find Noah. Noah in Genesis chapter 7 verse 9 with not only a clear understanding of the sacrificial system but also instructions from God to follow it. For example, in in chapter 8 of Genesis, once the flood subsides and and Noah is starting over, uh, chapter 8 verse 20 says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. If we rewind from there into Genesis chapter 7, we find God bringing the animals to Noah on the ark, and he tells him to take two by two uh, every uh, creeping thing on the earth, but he instructs him to take seven pairs of clean animals onto the ark so that he would be able to fulfill the requirements of the sacrificial system later on. So Noah clearly knew the substitutionary system. Rewind even further in the story again to Genesis chapter 3 like we did last week. And we find God is the one to make the first animal sacrifice in order to cover Adam and Eve uh, after their sin. 
So that must mean prior to Moses, even all the way back to Adam and Eve, there was a very clear understanding given by God himself about atonement and sacrifice and blood being the atonement for sin, all of which would ultimately point forward to Jesus. So, now with all of that being said, and I know that was a lot, but here is where it ultimately leads us to in our story, in Genesis chapter 4. Look again at verses 3 through 5 of Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. We know quite clearly that Cain and Abel knew what was right. In fact, God explicitly points out in verse 7 that Cain knew what was right. When he asks him, if you do well or if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? He, he implies there explicitly, you know what is right. But when Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to God, Abel made a blood sacrifice. Cain did not. What does that tell us? It tells us that Cain believed that he could approach God on his own terms. He believed that he could offer whatever he wanted to God rather than giving God what God required of him. Cain believed that he didn't need to follow God's instructions in order to be justified. He could just worship God however he pleased. He would decide what rituals to perform in order to atone for his sin. Who was God to tell him what to do? This, ladies and gentlemen, what we have here is the first example of self-made religion. How many of us live in such a way that our feelings determine our relationship to God rather than the commands of Scripture? We often look at the rules, the restrictions, the, the constraints of organized religion, and we say, no thanks, I'll, I'll worship God in my own way. Everyone can and should worship God in their own way. If you don't feel like going to church, that's fine. You can worship God without church. You think the commands of the Bible are too old-fashioned or too restrictive or no longer relevant to today's world? Okay, I guess they are then. Let's rewrite them or ignore them. Let's not worry about living by them. Hey, if, if that's how one person follows God, more power to them, okay? They can do whatever they want, but I don't have to be so restricted. The list goes on and on. 
And listen, here's the thing about Cain here. It's, it's not like Cain didn't believe in God, right? It's not like Cain was an atheist. Cain didn't deny God's existence. And it's not like Cain wasn't making sacrifices to God. Clearly, he is. Here he is offering something to God, offering something costly, I'm sure, to God. So what's the big deal about that? Cain wanted God, but only on his terms. He, he wasn't denying the reality of God. He wasn't even trying to cut God out of his life. He obviously wanted God to be a part of his life, but Cain wanted to dictate how he would relate to God and how God would relate to him. And when God rejected that, it made Cain very angry. Remember, like we talked about last week, Cain likely thought that he was going to be the fulfillment of God's prophecy in Genesis chapter 3. That there would be an offspring of Eve who would be the redeemer of mankind. Cain likely thought that that was going to be him. So Cain was full of pride. Cain thought, I can make all the rules. He had an an inflated view of himself. And so it's almost like Cain then dragged his brother off into a field after God rejected him and said to God, Oh, you want a blood sacrifice? (laughs) I'll give you blood. And he murdered his brother Abel. We do not get to come to God on our own terms. We must come to God on God's terms. If we try to come to God on our own terms, we find clearly here that God will have no regard. Now, remember that we talked about this last week. Just because he has no regard for us coming to him in, in our own terms, he still offers us his grace. He still offers mercy. He still offers love. We find him doing that not on one occasion, but on multiple occasions with Cain. God continues to give us chance after chance after chance. But we don't get to make up religion as we go. We also don't get to decide what God is like. Here's point number two. We must worship God as he is, not as we want him to be. We must worship God as he is, not as as we want him to be. Now, this obviously builds off of the first point. Not only do we try to approach God however we want, we also try to build God into whatever we want him to be. This is the Ricky Bobby approach. When you pray to God, you can pray to adult Jesus, bearded Jesus, teenage Jesus, You can pray to soft-spoken Mr. Rogers Jesus, party Jesus. You can pray to homeboy Jesus. Make up whatever version of Jesus you want. I'll choose the Jesus that I pray to. You choose the Jesus you want to pray to. All of us are happy. Go Jesus. Uh, In one of his books, J.D. Greer writes about a conversation that he had with a woman on an airplane. 
And in this conversation, he was explaining the gospel uh, to this woman. And he explained how Jesus said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And she goes, so you think Jesus is the only way? And Greer said, well, that's not what I think. That's, that's what Jesus thinks. And this woman's response is, my Jesus wouldn't say that. My Jesus wouldn't be so exclusive. Or there was a, a time at Taylor University recently where there was a backlash over a certain politician who'd been invited to speak at commencement. And the administration of that school voiced their support for this politician, calling him an evangelical Christian, a a follower of Jesus. And there was a student protest and rallies. And one of the rallying cries that the students were using is, Not my Jesus. A play off of another phrase, not my president. Not my Jesus. Perhaps you have heard or or seen or read online where someone has used this phrase often in a, a debate or an argument. And they use this phrase to defend a particular position. And they say, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, my Jesus wouldn't say that. My Jesus would do X, Y, or Z. My Jesus would say this, that, or the other. To borrow the words of J.D. Greer in response to this particular young lady, you don't get your own personal Jesus. None of us do. We don't get our own custom-made Ricky Bobby, however you decide, Jesus. We don't get God however we want him to be. We must either take him as he is, Or reject him as he is. I'll show you an example of this. uh, Quite a few years later, but um, in the Bible not too long after. In Exodus chapter 32. Um, And I don't have this on the board, so just follow along. In Exodus chapter 32, what we have is the story of the golden calf. And if you're familiar with this story, you know that the Israelites are now at the base of Mount Sinai. God has taken them out of Egypt by a lot of miracles, by the way. Uh, Over and over and over, he's showed off his power. He's done plagues in Egypt. He's brought them out. He's led them with this huge pillar of fire. He's split the sea in front of them. He's given them manna from heaven. I mean, he has been showing a lot of his power, right? So now the Israelites are on the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain and he is meeting with God in person, in a thunderstorm, in a whirlwind. The mountain is shaking. The Israelites are at the bottom. It's a powerful scene, right? If you picture this like a movie, it's highly dramatic. In that context, we find chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears and the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What? Are you kidding me? How was this happening? Right? After all that God has done, okay, it's not like they have to think about when was the last time God did something for me? Again, this is a series of very powerful miracles. And they're literally standing at the base of the mountain, looking up into a storm where God is talking to Moses. And I've always looked at this passage and wondered, how can this happen? How do you have these Israelites saying, yeah, let's worship somebody else. Let's make a golden calf. How could they be that stupid, that forgetful, that purposely daft? Surely no one really believes this, right? How could this happen? The answer to that question is that they, in this passage, are not making up a completely different God to worship. And that's how I've always read it in the past. Oh, well, here's the Israelites, and, and they're looking for a different God, and, and Aaron makes this golden idol, and they say, all right, this is the new God. Let's worship this thing. But that's not what's actually happening here. What they are doing is they are making, or shall I say, remaking Yahweh. They are remaking God. In verse 4 of this passage, it says that Aaron received gold from their hand. He fashions it. He makes a golden calf. And they say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The word there for God is the word Elohim. And the phrase used, brought you up out of the land of Egypt, was a phrase that Yahweh, Elohim, used in telling the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. So they call this thing Elohim and they quote Yahweh, same God. Then in verse 5, it says Aaron builds an altar and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And the word therefore the Lord is Yahweh. So, Yahweh is the word that's used for the covenant relationship with the God of Israel. Yahweh is not just a word that means God or Lord. Yahweh is a word that denotes a covenant relationship. So, the word woman and the word wife are two very different words. My wife is both, a woman and my wife. And any of us could describe her as woman. Only I could describe her as wife. Using that word denotes a relationship that I have with only her. That's the way the word Yahweh works. And when the Israelites stand before this golden calf, they call it Yahweh. So they're not, re, they're not making some brand new God up. They are remaking Yahweh. What they are doing is they are taking this scary God on a mountain who had so many rules, who's so unapproachable 
and they were trying to make him approachable. They're, they're trying to make him more palatable, more relevant to the times. All the other nations around us have bull statues. We want one too. They're making him easier to relate to, easier to manage. They're making him easier to please, easier to appease. They are making their own personal Jesus. That's what they're doing. Now, of course, we know that they are punished for it, (laughs) gravely punished for it. What we find in Genesis chapter 4 is Cain doing the very same thing. Not only was he trying to come to God on his own terms, he was doing so because, like the Israelites standing in front of the golden calf saying, this is Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt, Cain is saying, this is a God, the God, but he will do whatever I tell him. This is a God that I make with my own hands. This is a God that will just do whatever Cain tells him. Cain sacrificed his grain to his own personal Jesus. And Cain's Jesus would accept him as he is. Cain's Jesus would take that offering. Cain's Jesus would never ask for blood. That's weird. Cain's Jesus would be just fine with grain. The lesson here, of course, for us is that we don't get to play Mr. Potato Head with God. We don't get to just mix and match pieces and and move the pieces around and arrange his character however we want. Put an angry face or a smiley face. We We don't get to make him into whatever style we think he should have or put a bunch of different hats on him and then, whenever it serves us, change the image again. We have to take God as he is or we don't take him at all. We don't get to make our own. Point number three. We can't enjoy the real God when we're focused on a God of our own making. Remember that all of this is in the context of this series in which we're talking about tasting and seeing how good the Lord is. We're we're invited to experience his goodness. We're invited to experience how wonderful he actually is and and to let his goodness fill our lives and, and change our lives. But the catch is that we don't get to make him into what we think he should be so that we can define him as good. We're invited to learn how good he already is just the way he is. And when we're willing to accept that, then we can find out and taste and see how good the Lord is. Think about it like a a recipe. Uh, One of the things that we had for Thanksgiving dinner this past week is a sweet potato casserole. Uh, When I was living in Virginia, um, there was uh, a church potluck every single Thanksgiving. If you've ever been in a Southern Baptist church, uh, potlucks are done right. 
okay? And you have a group of old church ladies that have been doing it for 90 years. And they have the system down pat. They also have recipes down pat. And these old church ladies cook better than anyone else in the entire county. So there was this one particular dish, this sweet potato casserole, that the first time I ever went to a church potluck at this church, I tasted this sweet potato casserole and I was blown away. Okay, I love this casserole. And I took one bite and I was like, who made this? I'm looking around and I'm like, I'm a pastor at this church. Someone needs to give me information. Who is responsible for this casserole? And they point me over to this old lady and I go over to her and I'm like, you got to give my wife the recipe for your casserole. And she laughs and she's like, do you like it, Sonny? And I'm like, yes, I do. Give my wife the recipe right now. So she's like, all right, I will. So she writes it out and she gives my wife the recipe for this sweet potato casserole. Now we have it, not just in Thanksgiving, but whenever the mood strikes. And believe me, the mood strikes way more often than once a year. I love this recipe. Now, here's the thing about a recipe. It has to be followed or what you will get at the end of the recipe will not be whatever the recipe describes. See, if you don't follow the recipe and you say, well, you know, this doesn't really sound right. Surely that can't be in there. Huh, I know it would be better if I added this. If you do that, you will not get what that recipe actually describes. Now imagine that you do this. Imagine that this woman had had given this recipe to my wife and said, here's the recipe. If you do exactly what it says, you will have the same sweet potato casserole that your husband is so in love with. My wife takes it home and looks at the recipe and says, I don't really like this. I'm going to change it. I'm going to add this. I'm going to change these quantities. I'm going to throw these things in, take these things out. And then she puts in front of me this awful imitation. And I take one bite and I would say, this sweet potato casserole sucks. This is not what old church lady made. What have you done? You have desecrated this meal. Away. Flee from me, Satan. That's what happens if you don't follow the recipe. If you don't follow a recipe, you cannot judge whether or not the recipe is good. You can't just make it your own way and then say, this, this dish sucks. The only way that you can properly judge whether or not that meal is actually good is if you follow the recipe as it is written. Then you can make a judgment about what the dish is. In the same way, you cannot make God whatever you think he should be like and then look at that and say, this God isn't good enough. You can't change what scripture tells us about God. You can't fashion him your own way and then make a judgment about how he actually is. You cannot taste the goodness of God unless you are following the recipe of scripture. Notice something that happens here in Genesis chapter 4. It's a subtle detail. It's easy to miss. 
Verse 11 through 12, God punishes Cain. He says, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So, much like in Genesis chapter 3, when God confronts his parents in their sin, and there is a punishment handed out, in that particular passage, there is also grace. Yes, you are being punished, but also there is grace. The same thing happens here. Yes, there is punishment, but there is also grace. Cain complains that the punishment he is being given is too great. He says, you've given me a punishment that's greater than I can bear. What you're you're asking here is far worse than I could ever imagine. And if you do this, I'm going to be driven away and I'm going to get killed. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, no, that's not the case. I am going to give you a life-saving mark. I'm going to save your life so that if anyone tries to come up against you, whatever that mark was, we don't know what it was, if someone tries to come against you, they will see this man is marked by God. He is off limits. He is protected by the grace of God. So there's punishment, but there's also grace. But then in verse 16, we find this little detail that God did not require, that was not a part of the curse. Verse 16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Did God when handing down his punishment to Cain, say, Cain, you are now cast out of my presence. No. God didn't say that. God said that he would be a wanderer instead of being an established farmer. We, we know that Cain was a keeper of the ground, a worker of the ground. He was a farmer, tending land. And God says, I'm taking you out of that, and now you will wander. But he does not say, I cast you out of my presence. Cain, at this moment, could have, like his parents did, repented and remained in right relationship with God. He could have turned around. He could have submitted. He could have, just like God said in verse 7, if you do well, won't you be accepted? That offer is there. If you do what's right, if you know what's right and you do it, Don't you know that I'm going to accept you? God explicitly says that. But instead, Cain, it tells us, leaves the presence of God. And going against what God said, you will be a wanderer, he settles in the land of Nod. So he doesn't even follow what God has told him. And in the very next verse, we find, not only does he settle, he builds a city. That's not wandering at all. That is putting down your roots. He builds a city, and he names it after his own son. So, what we find here is that Cain did not want to accept God as he is. And he left. I don't want to accept God as he is, even though he offers grace. I am leaving. 
I'm going to go do my own thing, and I'm going to establish myself. I'm going to build this city. If it can't be here, it's going to be there, and I'm going to start my own line. And again, like we talked about last week, just two chapters later comes the flood. And everything that Cain built up is washed away. My friends, we cannot make the same mistake. We can't try to make our own version of God or, or leave this one altogether. The invitation is for us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, one more thing before we close. One more thing that we need to realize here. And this is point number four. Idol worship is dressed up self-worship. Idol worship is just dressed up self-worship. See, the first thing that Cain does is he, he tries to approach God on his own terms. Then he tries to have his own personal version of God, his own Jesus, who, who looks however Cain thinks he should. Then... Cain leaves God, and again in verse 17, it tells us he builds a city and names that city Enoch after the name of his son Enoch. And remember, all of this happens after Cain likely spends most of his life believing that he will be the chosen one, the redeemer of mankind. So, we have to ask ourselves, who was Cain worshiping? Cain was worshiping himself. Whenever we make God, in reality, we're just worshiping ourselves. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we find that God made man in his own image. In the likeness of God, he created them. But then Adam and Eve, Cain's parents, decide we want to be our own God. We don't want to submit to God. Even though we are created in his image, we want to be our own. And they leave. And that same mistake is passed down to their firstborn son who decides, I don't want to be one made in the image of God. I want God to be made in the image of me. It is self-worship. We cannot create a thing and then worship that thing without realizing that it is a mirror that only points back at ourselves. The mistake that we make in trying to fashion God however we want him is in failing to see that that is no God at all. It is only a more powerful version of myself. And so not only can we not approach God on our own terms. We, we can't try to make God whatever we think he should be. We also can't worship ourselves. I don't know about you. I am not capable of being a God of any type of universe. I can barely get my daughter to dress herself for church. <laughs> okay. I am not a God. And none of you are either. If we don't come to God as he is, we will never taste and see how good he is. As long as I am at the center, I am in the way. 
And the only thing that I can do is submit and ask God to reveal himself to me so that I can worship him. That is the hope that I have for teaching through this series. And I pray that each of us would come to a place of humility and in doing so, that we really would experience how incredible our God actually is. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to see you as you are. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to worship you, to praise you. God, I pray that you would help us to be humble, to submit ourselves to you, Lord, and that when we do, you would show your goodness to us. That you would repair our damaged taste buds. That you would replace our desires with a desire for you. God, that you would bring us to a place where we don't see following Scripture as, a, as an invisible fence. Where we're not obeying you out of obligation, but Lord, rather out of joy, knowing that you sanctuary us. You protect us from sin that is trying to kill us. God, I pray that we would come to you not out of duty, but out of joy, and that we would give you our first, we would give you our best, that we would worship you as you are, and as we do those things, or that we would be blown away by how good, how wonderful, how perfect, how beautiful you are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Josh will play our closing song.